All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast, and we got a special episode today because I have a really good friend and guest to talk about nutrition and the impact we're going to explore with like mental health and recovery. So I have Annie Weiss with me, um, registered dietitian, helps patients in psychiatric care, and running is one of her hobbies, passions. She loves doing it and working on her own practice with ornery mule racing to help athletes with their nutrition. Uh, been a dietitian since 2008 and specific to mental health since 2013. Uh, Annie loves running long distances and has her own podcast called Between Two Pastries discussing body positivity, intuitive eating and debunking diet culture. And I really appreciate you being here with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we, uh, we met for work. So mm-hmm. we, we worked a long time ago together. We weren't even really that close of friends nope. when we worked. <laughs> but we were early uh, birds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Early birds. But then um, our love for running, I think, is what's really kept our connection yeah. going through the years. Yeah. And then to see that we're both in the profession of helping others and mental health and addiction um, kind of really brings that all together. So there's a lot of reasons why I could have had you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, cause I think there's a lot of things with even like running and mental health and all that kind of stuff and recovery, but yep. I, I really found that I think having you talk about food and nutrition was the most value right now with some of the work that I'm doing that you've been doing and does nutrition have an impact on recovery, like mental health, uh, you know, that can go both ways depending on how it's going, but that's an area where I think is really under addressed in a lot of treatment and just knowledge of that connection. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, thinking back to your comment about, about running and, and mental health, it's, we all know that physical activity is going to make us feel better. And I think we all assume that eating healthy is going to make us feel better. However, that, part about nutrition is so um, convoluted in, um, in society and our culture right now with what to eat or what not to eat and people getting so many mixed messages about it um, that, that I think at some point people just don't know what to eat. And then you pair that with um, trying to make those decisions and now struggling with addiction and recovery and mental health. Uh, issues. Now you're all of a sudden, you know, putting yourself in a worse position as you're nutritionally um, not up to par with where perhaps your body needs to be. So nutrition plays a huge role. And although there's tons of dietitians in psychiatric hospitals and clinics, and perhaps even therapists even refer to dietitians to help with nutrition, um, it's an area that is is truly neglected um, on so many levels, for sure. Yeah. And I've seen that. It made me think of in my years of all different kinds of counseling I've done, like group home, halfway house, residential, yep. intensive inpatient, Medicaid assisted treatment, you know, all these different settings where even I saw people, you know, living in a, in a setting where you could have an impact on the food they have. Cause that's like a, a provider takes care of that. Yep. realizing that all this time it was something that was never really discussed. And as I, as we talk about now, it's strange because do you know how much research I've done and videos I've watched of how ingesting drugs and what that does to every part of the body. So like, I know like what opiates, you know, how yep. they, how they work and the impact, how like alcohol, you know, about yep. even cigarettes, but then, all of a sudden, like food is something that also gets ingested. Right. And it works in some of the, a lot of the same ways that other substances of abuse are go throughout the body too. Well, and it's it's one of those things because there's a fine line, like working in an inpatient setting where with kids, and there's a fine line between is it really worth talking to them about their nutrition or is this something that can wait a little bit? But then you work with the adults and have you already missed the point of creating those nutrition habits with people who already have their own viewpoints on nutrition. They already have kind of like what they like and dislike and and taste buds have already formed. 
So there's like this, this huge gap because you don't want to create an eating disorder and you right. also don't want to, yeah, you don't want to feed into people who only want to eat, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches all day long as an adult even. So, and then you've got this level of, you know, well, I need comfort because they're in a state of stress. So it's, you know, you know, you talk about different facilities and what facilities offer. You can put as many healthful, quote unquote, menu items on, you know, in front of patients and they will nine times out of 10 say, I don't want to eat it. <laughs> and then you put a burger and fries in front of them and that's all they want. And I, yeah. I want to, you know, kind of like, what is that when you're in a state of stress, we just kind of go for those comfort foods and there's really, really absolutely nothing wrong with that. But with people struggling with addiction for as many years as they might be struggling with it, um, you know, we have adults who they may have been struggling with addiction since they were 16 years old and they've detoxed 10 different times. And they're, you know, this is going to be that time. Guess what? That's a lot of stress on the body in For so sure. many different ways. Right. Yeah. So, you know, now again, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you just kind of start that cycle again of, okay, we need to detox. We're in recovery. We need to start changing some of these habits. Um, because, you know, and that's really the time to do it is when a, a client or a patient is in that recovery phase and it can be early on. I mean, when a person is still, you know, struggling with their addiction or they're in a contemplative mode, um, they're feeling some ambivalence towards recovery or they're detoxing, you know what, you got to eat what you got to eat. We need to focus on actually getting to the point of wanting to stop this addiction because right. by far cigarettes, opioids, all of those things are going to kill you long before a cheeseburger and French fries will, <laughs> uh, or your weight even, you know, sure. uh, so, you know, some things that I like to do when I have to talk to a patient who might be in detox, um, you know, and still in that, you know, addiction phase, we'll call it, um, is really just say, Hey, you know what, it's time. We got to make sure we're eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Maybe you might have snacks in between if you're feeling hungry, but I want you to make sure you're eating three solid meals a day. Um, because oftentimes people who struggle with addiction, they're hardly eating anything. Yeah, that's a good um, point. Because when we yeah. have like the opioid treatment program, when they come in, you know, they're they're still actively using, like not a lot of people come yes. to treatment sober, you know, like, no, like no. they come no. in like some of their worst of their worst shape. Um, yeah. They probably tried managing on their own, controlling it, stopping, like usually treatment yeah. is like a last resort before you get locked up or you end up like in a hospital. Yes. So when they yep. come in, they're, they're in really rough physical, mental, emotional, like they're in pretty rough shape. And then we look at trying to get them to a point where they're not using anymore. And there are times where people look pretty thin, pretty, pretty gauntly. Um, you hear yep. family members and loved ones describe um, them as being like ghostly, zombie-ish. You know, depending on what they're using, it has different effects. Right. But in general, like an, an active, addictive lifestyle does not put, you know, food and nutrition as a priority, it puts no. using and drugs above everything. And that includes even something like eating. Yes. hundred percent, hundred percent. And so when they come in, in that phase, um, they are, they maybe will have lost a lot of weight and they nutritionally are just so, um, under the bar where they should be because they've chosen to have drugs instead of meals. So, you know, is that really the time to say, Ooh, you need to eat chicken breasts and salads? Probably not. You know, like, <laughs> hey, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's McDonald's. I don't care. Three solid meals a day, drinking water, you know, whether you choose to chew gum or you're chewing on a stick or straws to help with whatever you need to put in your mouth to make that, you know, feeling occur that you're, you know, you've been used to whatever it is, do it or suck on a piece of candy. Fine. Yeah. Then, you know, they hit that, you know, they, okay, they move on from inpatient, they're past detox. And we hit that maybe residential or partial intensive outpatient level of care. And sometimes they, they cycle back around and, and, 
now nutritionally they get even lower if they end up you know falling back to their d- addiction so right. it's it's really at that residential partial level when people are have been sober for you know a month let's say and we can start to say okay you're having breakfast lunch and dinner awesome are you eating fruits and vegetables do you have access to fruits and vegetables? If not, what can you have access to? Canned fruit, canned vegetables, that's okay. Um, and just now we're hitting the major food groups. So it's three meals a day. And now we're making sure that at least at two of those meals, we're getting some fruits and some veggies. Um, and then from there, are you having protein? And is it, we're not gonna say it needs to be organic and GMO, whatever. Like. It just, are you eating chicken, beef, uh, pork, turkey? Are you eating some form of protein? And sure. ideally a form of protein. Okay, great. Now let's move on to grains and dairy. And you kind of, you hit your food groups. Okay, now they've been in recovery and they're, they're you know, hitting their food groups and they're balancing this out. And again, this all comes to client or patient choice. <laughs> You know, yeah, the yeah. the day, they do have a choice to eat however they want. Right. Um, because especially as adults, they've, they've developed habits. It's hard to change habits. But again, if you approach it from baby stepping, it's much easier for adults to do it. And with kids, it, you don't want to police them, you know, so it's, it becomes this like, and that's when that eating disorder stuff can actually happen. And what I've noticed too, adults or kids, when therapists or doctors or people who just aren't experts at nutrition as it relates to mental illness, they want to say, cut out all the gluten, cut out all the dairy, don't eat this, don't eat that. And it becomes very overwhelming for people who are already overwhelmed with having to give up their best friend in life or their addiction. Right. So it's so important to really take it step by step and just focus on things that aren't going to overwhelm and things that are actually realistic to obtain. Um, Because nine times out of 10 with addiction, you're probably not going to see morbidly obese patients. And even if they are, um, what likely is happening is it's a complete hormone imbalance. They're stressed out. Um, Perhaps it's alcohol. And once they remove the alcohol, weight will start to fall, but start them then on walking 15 minutes a day, just enjoying the outdoor or outdoors or walking with their kids, or maybe they like to bike, um, versus just eliminating all of the food from, from their diet. Um, and that's honestly what so many practitioners want to do, uh, versus, you know, really, um, tackling it as, we have to start at the bottom and work our way up with the basics. We, we're not going to log our calories and we're not going to, we just, let's just, it's there and we have an awareness about nutrition, but we're not going to make it this crazy thing that we have to focus on because with addiction and then recovery, there, there's so much going on. I, I mean, recovery is all, all you think about is staying away from that, that drug that you had relied on for so many years um, and that, or working on the trauma you experienced or the abusive relationship or whatever, um, you know, doing exposure work. I mean, all of that is so, so important that worrying about all of this food stuff can fall, you know, it does fall to the wayside, but in a, a way to make an awareness where it's not overwhelming is really, really to just baby step these things, um, as you go through the process of recovery. Yeah, and I think one of the points that you highlight that we don't want to miss is that someone also, if they go from that phase of like not eating, like not caring about food, like one, they, they get so, you know, underweight or they look so like malnourished almost to a point. And mm-hmm. then when they, when they do stop using and they do start to eat, like, let's be honest too, like they are probably starting to feel better. Like, yeah, and, and, I, and I hear that from like, yes. family members always tell me, always tell me like one of the things that they notice is that the person that's now getting sober and treatment, they say they look like they're, there's more color to them. They look like mm-hmm. there's more life to them. So like, don't want to also like kind of miss the point that they're probably feeling better. And now that they're eating again, like that is actually 
making them feel like things are getting better. And I know like working in residential, like family members would come bring food or mm-hmm. bring snacks. And part of it was because family members were like, wow, look how good they look. They were so, you know, malnourished. They, they didn't even take care of themselves. Like they look so much better and fuller to them sometimes is like a relief. Yes. To, like, some family members, but then it goes sometimes that without that education piece or that plan, I have seen it where then it swings mm-hmm. to the other side where someone who is now sober and abstinent from substances, I've seen some people gain some pretty heavy weight in recovery. Yeah, so well, we're think, now we're concerned. <laughs> well, right. And that begs the question, what is their normal weight? Right. It depends totally. What was their weight prior to addiction? But if that was when they were 18, that's very different than when they're 45. You yeah. Know? So, so who, that could be the weight that they physiologically are supposed to be at, or is that added weight because they've shifted their addiction to something else? I mean, I don't believe that that food is, a, is an addicting thing. However, it is a coping mechanism. Right, right. It's a response to emotions oftentimes for a lot of people who don't have a good relationship with food um, and they don't have, uh, they don't know how to connect with their body um, and, and feel. And so we, we, we do other things like perhaps drugs or um, gamble or we eat. It, 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 so I think it's, it's you know, we, we call food an addiction, but really like it's not an addiction so much as it is a coping mechanism and at times often a maladaptive coping mechanism. And that's, you know, when a person is, is malnourished and they start eating, great, let them eat. They're, they're metabolically, um, they're at a higher rate at that point. And you're absolutely right. It can swing all the way over here then. And that's where, you know, on that path in recovery, we're talking, having these conversations of like, hey, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Awesome. You had a bowl of cereal and milk and a banana um, and, you know, half a bagel and peanut butter. Great breakfast. Depending on the person and who they are, if it's a 5'1", 100-pound female versus a 6, you know, six foot, 250-pound male, they're going to be eating right. two very different things, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So then you've got, you know, oh, that's, that's a great breakfast. When you notice a trend of someone eating, you know, hey, I had a donut this morning, that's totally cool. That's not bad if that's, you know, that's someone's choice to do. But when you, they say, you know, I had a donut and then I went back and I had another one and then I bought this and then I bought this and I was feeling this way, that's your red flag to say, this person is emotionally struggling with something. And usually the therapist can, you know, identify that appropriately. Um, but they also are, are using food then to, to feel or, or at right. least feel in that moment. Right. And, well, and one thing we do is we took away their one and only coping skill yes. of, of using drugs. Like now they have to learn how to deal with life sober, which right. in all my experience, you know, I've always said that treatment, treatment is like kind of glamorized like the commercials are like hey like go here and you'll be better or come here and your family will trust you again like go (laughs) here and your problems will like go away but I know like when people get sober like it's not like all glamour like now all of a sudden they got to feel emotions that have been like masked for who knows how long they got to deal with thoughts that are like going through their mind so like all of a sudden, like we've, we've talked to them about taking away something that they have really used to, to get through life. Like they're in a yep. bad mood. They use, they're in a good mood. They use like something bad's going on in life. They use something great happened in life. They use like, it became yep. like such an everything. And then we, we take that away or we say, Hey, like the goal is to not use this anymore. So it's not surprising that all of a sudden, like something like food can mm-hmm. be used in that interim of like I'm stopping this, but now before I learn all this, like what do I do in the meantime? Like you just you don't learn a brand right. new coping skill overnight no. and become like a pro at it. No, like, no. <laughs> that would something, be great, though. Yeah, it would be, but something's gonna happen in the meantime. So that's right. why I think like food 
is something, and I, I like how you say like the part of the addiction with food because food is going to be a part of someone's life. Mm-hmm. It's not just something that we can say, we'll be abstinent. No, we, no, no, <laughs> no, we, we 100% need food to live. Right. And in not little teeny tiny bits, we need enough of it too. Right. Um, you know, and, and to your point before about, you know, giving up the, the addiction, um, you know, your only coping skill and then having to feel it's, it, it also, you know, makes me think about how so many people like, you know, you, you dive into these maladaptive coping skills or you run from your problems, but everywhere you go, there you are. Right. And even once you've given up the addiction and you're in recovery, everywhere you go, there you are, whether you decide to become an over-exerciser, which is the exact same as abusing food or abusing a drug. It's, you know, all of those things, what, what nine times out of 10 has to happen is we have to start feeling and all the yucky feelings we don't want to feel, which oftentimes is trauma related, right? And Mm -hmm. getting kind of at that root of why, why the addiction even started in the first place or, or a a poor coping skill. I mean, oftentimes I work with clients who um, have binge eating disorder, you know, so then there, you know, we have to face like, when did this start? Why did this start? What was going on in your life that made you feel like you had to eat this particular way? Which is and why I like mindfulness. Cause that yes. I did a, I started a mindfulness based wellness prevention group for, for addiction. And what I liked about it was that it actually incorporated eating into a lesson where you get into like, you know, thinking about what the food is like what's it made of why why do you want it like smelling it like getting just more of like aware of like why i'm doing this and it it led into like really this is what we need to do with like our emotions and our thoughts like why am i feeling this way why does this um what is this that i'm feeling even you know what are my thoughts around it and it was it was great because it used like a simple exercise of like um, I would use those uh, chocolate-covered blueberry uh, cyberries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I would just have them, like, you know, smell it and kind of, like, hold yep. it, texture. Like, are you even hungry? Is your body telling you you're hungry? Are you yep. full? Like, so that exercise was always good because it showed that not only do we should we do this with eating, but this is what we need to do with, like, other things that we're experiencing because I've always been under yes. the – the notion that people use substances because they don't like how I feel without like normal. Right. Like right now 100%. I don't like how I feel and I need to find some way to feel different, whether that's feel numb. super excited yep. to, to boost my mood, whether that's to numb something or escape. But normally you look back on it as why, why was that? And it's because they were uncomfortable with how they felt Right. And I want to feel different. I, right. I can't, I can't handle how I'm feeling right now any longer. Right. Well, and I think, you know, we have to go back to also, you know, on that same point, food is not the problem. It's our relationship with food such that, you know, we, we, we know we shouldn't be doing drugs. So we, we get into that phase of recovery and now, oh crap. I have to start feeling and I don't like that feeling. And unless we're willing to expose ourselves to those feelings. And I think part of the issue is too, is everyone thinks that once they feel, they have to do something about it. And, and you don't, you can just sit (laughs) and feel angry or feel sad or feel numb or feel, feel all of the feelings and just let them escape, let them go. Or we just sit with them until we're done feeling that way. We don't actually have to do anything about how we feel. Yeah, I love um, that in, right. in groups. Um, yes. I had a guy who was, we had like half an hour left of group and he was really feeling a certain way. And it was almost to a point where, you know, it was like, you could tell he like was getting to this point where he's like, he has to do something about it. And the you know, someone said, well, what do you do about it? What are you going to do about that? And part of me was, I said, you know, we can just, we're still going to be here for half an hour. Like mm-hmm. we'll, we'll sit here. We'll, we'll probably talk about something else. And then by the time this 30 minutes is over, 
you're going to realize that there was no need to like get up and jump out the window and go do something or to, it might've been uncomfortable. It Mm might've been a little bit um, weird, embarrassing, or may have been just a little tough, but like, I've always told people that nowhere on a coroner report or medical report is going (laughs) to say you died of how you felt. Correct. Like boredom, boredom (laughs) won't, boredom won't kill you. Nope. But like when you go and get high to deal with boredom, it's the drugs that's going to kill you. Right. But if if you're bored and I stick you in a chair Mm -hmm. and I keep you there for 30 minutes or an hour, you're, I'm not going to see you keeled over from boredom. Right. It might suck. It might be uncomfortable, but that's not really what is going to end up being the cause of you know, killing someone is not that. It's going to be the drugs right. they chose to use. hundred percent. The drugs they chose to use. And then you couple that with anxiety that you're not dealing with, which is causing physical health to decline because, you know, you're causing more stress and then your blood pressure goes up, then you're doing drugs. So then, then that changes everything physiologically in your body. I mean, it's, it's a big loop that you're in when, when you choose to do drugs versus actually starting to feel. And when you start to feel, you start to learn about who you are. Wow, I have some serious depression issues. Or wow, I'm a super angry person and I just learned I really, really hate this person. I need to learn how to deal with that in a more healthful way um, so I don't choose to do drugs or, you know, whatever different maladaptive coping skills. And I always, I remember a, a client of mine in a group actually, um, who was recovering and had, um, from a few different things, but addiction was one of them. And I actually had her for more of the eating disorder stuff. And I remember her talking about anger because we were, we were in a group on feelings and she said, you know, Annie, it's like, I've gotten to the point where I just, when I start feeling angry, I remind myself that if, you know, I'm on the freeway in my car and I'm carrying a, in my pickup truck and I'm carrying a beautiful 52 inch TV and it falls out and smashes all over on the freeway. And I can think about how incredibly maddening and, and angry I am about that. Or I can say, there's nothing I can do about it. The TV's TV broke. broke. <laughs> and you can't fix it. Like yeah. the TV's yeah. broke. Yeah. It sucks yeah. that it happened. And I acknowledge that this makes me angry and I want to feel angry about it, but I don't have to react to that anger. Right. And I don't have right. to let it affect me physically or mentally. I can just feel that feeling and then I release it because at, at the end of the day, with so many things we feel, so much of it is out of our control. And I often wonder if that's really what makes people start to engage in these maladaptive coping skills is because feelings are things that oftentimes we cannot control. Um, we start to feel angry and all of these things happen and we don't understand why. And it might be really out of our control. Whereas someone with a different personality type is like, eh, whatever and gets angry about something else, you know? So it, it really, um, sometimes I wonder if that maybe, and again, I'm, I, this is just me talking. I have no idea if there's a study <laughs> whatsoever, but I really wonder if that lack of control with emotions is what causes people to really want to numb them so they can keep that control. Because yeah. as you know, with food, people do it all the time. They want to control um, whatever aspect, uh, you know, the food part of their life, because all the other aspects are so out of control that I'm going to control food and count my calories and I'm going to eat this and that and be all this crazy stuff over here instead of just realizing that food's out of our control or how our body looks is out of our control at times too. So uh, that's something that I, I really do think emotions are probably one of the leading drivers on so many, so much of this at the end of the day. But I know too that like the control thing is with you work with addiction and you know, control is a really big topic of when you talk about like loss of control, giving up control and whether that's of the drugs itself, your addiction itself, like other people. I mean, that's like that, that gets covered in a whole bunch of areas, but I know like when then you look at like something like eating, 
you know, I'm wondering if that's something that, you know, we take away the drugs or we say you can't use anymore. They have to give it up. They lose that. Like food in other areas are probably things where they then try and get some kind of sense of regaining control. Oh, heck yeah. 100%. Um, and I know that's really hard because like just the way like addictive thinking goes, like I know that can work with food where it's like with, with drugs, it might be, well, I can have just one more or mm-hmm. a little, like those are all things that can easily get transitioned over to food as well. Yes. Um, and I know people that have really struggled even when they gave up using like the idea that they had to like acknowledge that they've lost control or that powerlessness Mm -hmm. feeling that they try to acknowledge. Um, And I think that that could easily be where they try in other areas to try and get more control or gain more control because they had to give up control in an area like addiction. Well, so then, then the, that begs the question, should the practitioner be telling, you know, clients, you know, to eat a certain way, or should we be talking about control? You know, that's, that's the million dollar question is, you know, maybe then if they're, you know, starting to do three packs of cigarettes a day, or they're eating six donuts or whatever it is, however, they transfer that addiction into something that's, you know, slightly more socially acceptable and legal. What is it about control then that, that has to be discussed or, or how do you go about that and, and working on that. You know what I mean? That's yeah, the, I think uh, it's, I think that becomes like the psychoeducation on when eating becomes like maladaptive. Yes. When, when, when food becomes similar to what, are you eating just like how you were with using drugs? Right. Well, and then you at know, that point, is it, is it disordered eating? Right. Or is it even classified as an eating disorder then? Because if it does swing so far over to binge eating or maybe even, a purging type thing because that's all about control. And and you know, we see that too with people with addiction is they'll sometimes swing into, you know, well, I feel this control with food, whether I'm eliminating it or adding too much of it, or I'm choosing to overexercise or purge in some way, shape, or form. Um, so then now they're just, you know, it's just whack-a-mole with different programs <laughs> at that point, you know, or whack-a-mole with different mental illnesses. And and again. And I think of this too with um, diagnoses and also exposure work. Like, you know, you're playing that whack-a-mole game with we're going to work on your addiction. And then at some point it gets too uncomfortable. So now I'm going to just transfer everything to my anxiety. And then I'm going to work on that until that's too uncomfortable. And then I've got an eating disorder. Okay, now we'll work on, you know, and you just see this movement of all of these, you know, you, someone has four diagnoses, let's say, and they just keep moving around between the four as to what the focus is instead of someone, psychiatrist, patient, therapist, diet, anyone saying, maybe instead of that, we need to go back and look at why do you keep doing, what is the underlying reason for all of these maladaptive coping skills and food? Yes. Food is a huge one. And I, I think I see it all the time. You see it all the time. In my opinion, at the inpatient level, there's not much I can do. But from your standpoint, you can do so much at, at the level of care that you're at, especially with recovery. Yeah, well, it's a funny thing because when you bring up like, you know, at first when I was doing this, it was very simple. Like you use alcohol and drugs. Like, mm-hmm. do, do, you, do you abuse any of those, use any of those? And as things have progressed, you know, like that, those questions have gotten larger now. So Mm -hmm. now it's asking about, um, you know, not just drugs, but asking about like vaping and asking about, you know, um, asking about gambling, asking about video games, asking about pornography, asking about technology. But one of the things that probably does not get asked a lot is do you think you ever have an issue with with eating or with food? It's it's like, usually phrased, do you have a diagnosis, a current or history of an eating disorder? Yeah, and that's that is a, there's eating disorders, but there's also <laughs> like people who are issues can, can be coping yes. poorly with food. That Correct. doesn't that doesn't mean it's gonna manifest into an eating disorder, but like I'm thinking Correct. like 
I've been working. So when I've been working on getting my gambling certification, I've been working okay. how often gambling gets ignored. Like, yeah. Oh, it does. Don't, don't ask about that. But like, we're going to, we're like pornography addiction and video game addiction has soared to like, it's we got to ask about this, yeah. but like food and gambling has been around forever. <laughs> like, so why yeah. is it? So this is a big question. Why is it that food and even something now like gambling, why have those things been like ignored or yeah, totally why, neglected. why has it taken so long to have that be a question on a, on an assessment? You know, Hey, do you gamble? Do right. you do this? By the way, are there times where you feel like you eat your feelings? Are there times where you may have thought that you like just some basic questions, one or two, but like, right. Well, and is it, is it the language? Maybe instead of gambling, like, do you, you know, like, are there other words that could be used? Because a lot of people don't want to think, Oh, I don't have, I don't have a gambling issue when yeah. maybe they really yeah. do or on the, are on the path to it. And I know too, like a lot of people have eating disorders that, don't want to believe that they actually have an eating disorder. So it's like, no, that's too, no, we don't need to work on that part of me. But then also you see so many times in assessment, they ask about appetite. And oftentimes, especially with addiction, appetite is poor. Well, right. there's never, right. you know, a dietary consult on that. And it's like, how do we, how do we help the people who have poor appetites then? And that's just, you know, a question I'm just throwing out there because it's something that I know our facility struggles with. Someone has poor appetite, they're, they're detoxing because again, it's an inpatient level. And then what, what do we do for them? Because appetite is something that, I mean, that plays a role in, in nutrition hundred percent. Or, or when we look at like appetite, even when I do like outpatient mental health, like mm -hmm. someone might be having, they might say, well, I'm poor appetite lately because I'm like depressed or they yep. might say that because they've been anxious a lot or they've been dealing with a lot of things like a, a breakup is a typical one where someone, oh, like, yeah. um, yeah. or like a divorce that I'm, I'm dealing with or something. But the, the language of it though, makes sense because there's also a lot of times where they just, someone says my appetite's good. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with yeah, eating. I don't whatever. have a problem, but like, there's probably more questions that it maybe it's hard when we're doing like an assessment for the first time. Cause there's a whole whole slew of things we got to, to ask about There's a lot of other questions but, to ask. but there are some more questions that should be posed around eating just to explore like whether or not this person maybe is um using eating for maladaptive coping or if maybe they have shown some signs of poor nutrition or um something like that but there's not enough questions i think about that being asked, especially when you're looking at addiction, mental health places that it's not right. focusing solely on eating disorders. It's, it's usually ignored. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, there, there's even people that I've worked with who were in my eating disorder program and then transferred to a mental health unit. And it just literally goes to the wayside because it's just, it's, it's not something that, you know, oftentimes it's not even something that's supported on, on the treatment team always, and, and they don't want to budget for it. And, and then they're asking patients to, uh, well, maybe you need to see someone, an outpatient, you know, that kind of a thing, which again, is another barrier to a lot of people to have to find those resources or, or practitioners in their communities um, when maybe they're from out of town, or maybe they don't, they don't know of any resources, or they don't have money because you know, oftentimes dietitians are not covered and that's all out of pocket. So then what do you do? And it, I, oftentimes it's, it's really hard because unless it is an eating disorder program, the nutrition side of it is, is neglected and also so misunderstood because again, so many people just want to push salads on people <laughs> instead of actually like going through, like thinking about, Hey, Maybe if I were in these shoes, I wouldn't want to eat kale every day. Yeah, you know? no kidding. Like, right. Right? Like yeah. being realistic. And then, okay, now this person isn't suicidal. Now they're not doing drugs. Now they're not, you know, now we can start working on these things if they so choose. Um, so I do think that programs do neglect the nutrition, but I also am wondering if there there's just such a lack of, knowledge base or, or even, you know, just on where, where resources are, 
who in the community in in a person's community is available um and and how a person can go about it whether they what if they don't have transport what if right. they you know don't have insurance or their their access to something is limited you know then what so i think uh, their community might not like we talked oh, no. about like up, yeah. like way up north one of the problems well, is like yeah there's even like addiction counselors were running low like they yeah there are some counties that didn't have a licensed addiction counselor and that's where they were pushing like allowing marriage and family therapists and lpcs to be able to treat addiction because yeah. there was someone not even in the county so i'm imagining if someone yeah. doesn't have like an addiction counselor there's also a good chance that they might not have like a dietitian. Oh yeah. Or, like, I mean, I, I'm, resource yeah. in the area. <laughs> a mental health dietitians that I'm aware of go as far as Appleton and then Minneapolis, um, you know, that way, but like the whole top half of our state is, I mean, it's super hard if I have to refer to like, you're better off just doing a zoom or Skype with a person telehealth um, if they live up that way. Um, right. Michigan is limited in dietitians. I mean, and, and you've got a ton in, you know, you've got saturated areas. I mean, there's definitely mental health dietitians that are out there, but you definitely do have these deserts, not only food deserts with what people can purchase and, and have access to, but also with practitioners who have an understanding of addiction and mental illness and also the credentialing as a, of a dietitian. I mean, that's far and few between on the upper half of our state, for sure. Yeah, and I think what where this really all sprung from too is when you look at these issues along with everything else, is that you work with a client, every everyone is different. Like, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you look at, you know, where to start with somebody like the research to do this, and this is the most effective, um, we all know that like, there's just ones that other things are going to have more of an impact than others. And I think about the story I told you, which got me to really think about this was my one patient who was had anxiety for a year and I saw him for a year and everything we tried to do, new coping skills, all that like wasn't working. It wasn't having an impact. He had a really stressful job. And even though we came up with coping skills and coping skills for work, like he was using them, but it, it, like his anxiety was still not having an impact. And one day he came into my office with um, a, a giant coffee from Starbucks. Yep. And I noticed like, I just, for whatever reason that day, I was like, man, you know, he comes in with those quite often. So that got me to ask him, Hey, how often do you have those? Mm -hmm. And from that, we're talking about, you know, he told me by the end, like every day, he pretty much had um, eight shots of um, espresso yep. a, a day. And me not knowing, me knowing about stimulants. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like me, I was kind of like, that sounds like a lot. Like you are yeah. probably <laughs> over caffeinated. And we worked on tapering him down. He dealt with headaches for a really oh, long yeah. time, like not just a day after headache, like headache for a long time. But after we got through that, his anxiety was normal. He had yeah, like yeah. normal, but here's the thing, like I really don't know if anything else therapy wise, you know, CBT wise, all that, if any of that would have been helpful to him except if he like i think the only thing that really would have helped is him not drinking as much coffee right exactly and that's that's the thing too that you know i mean similar to food people oftentimes they give up their their addiction and whether they i've often seen this where they'll go to cigarettes um, which is another drug, or I've seen caffeine be like, I have to have caffeine. That's what I do. And it's, it becomes this, like, it, it that's another drug that they'll choose to use. So, um, and caffeine affects anxiety, you know, yeah, hundred percent caffeine infects, <laughs> caffeine affects anxiety. Um, because again, it makes you race, right? It makes your heart race, which feel, which is the same feeling that you have if you have 
anxiety. And he probably started with one or two shots and then it just needed to keep being increased right, because right. as the body gets used to caffeine, oh, I don't feel anything now. I need to add some more and, and so forth. So or by stress got that worse. Up, well, like, exactly. Bad stress day of goes work. up. Yeah. Cortisol goes up. Your sleep is off. I mean, it's it caffeine so out of whack, like more than a cup or two of coffee, for example, will just screw you up like crazy um, in, in the sense of your hormones, uh, your sleep and all of that. So, I mean, if people can keep caffeine to one or two cups of coffee a day or a shot of espresso, that's, I mean, that's, that, that would be huge. If you can just do decaf coffee, that's even better. Right. But you know, that's hard for people to give that up sometimes more so uh, than a drug oftentimes. I think he saw like how he he I think he there was a belief that he noticed that that was not good for him, and with yeah. all the stuff that we were doing not working, like believing that this may, and and this is where I'm I'm coming full circle with this is like believing that by changing something like his nutrition mm-hmm. could have such an impact to help change his life, and when you right. work with mental health and you work with addiction with all the things that can be against someone with all the things that could be triggers to using again, or what could make uh, mental health symptoms worse. Like if there is something that could be a make it or break it for, you know, our patients and our clients, if nutrition and food could be something that does help their recovery or help them with their mental health. Like I think it's worth talking about, and yeah. it's worth investing in. It's worth having conversations with because I just can't get over that. That, that one story, like, I don't know what else would have helped that guy. Like, right. what if I never would have asked that question? Right. 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 Can you imagine? Right. It's that, good so, you thought to do that. So I think that's probably with other, and that, and that maybe that's like more of like one of the extremes, but I'm sure the work you've seen, there's, there's tons of extremes with food, just like there's tons oh, yeah. of extremes with with addiction. But with that, it's like that could be the difference maker with some people is if I can learn more about my nutrition or my eating. And if I can, when I'm in recovery, or when I relapse, and when I need mm-hmm. to get back into recovery, like if nutrition might play a role in making your next um, yep. attempt at sobriety, going well, or even yep. someone who had an attempt with like a suicide or something. Yeah. You yeah. know, like if food and nutrition might make that plan smarter and stronger going forward, I think it's worth yeah. looking into or having a conversation with or spending 10 minutes of some psychoeducation or a homework assignment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just felt like for years, it was always there. We yeah. always know about it. We've learned more about the body. We've probably learned more about how things are interworking and intertwining and getting along or not getting along. But yet we still forget to ask or bring up stuff related to food as clinicians, right. as providers. Um, if that's your profession or your specialty, yep. you do really well at that. But there's a whole lot of other people dealing with these issues that aren't dealing with specific eating disorder populations. Right. Oh, hundred percent. And I think, and I think that's where the, there needs to be a bridge. Like there should just, with anyone working with someone in mental illness, there needs to be a dietitian either referred to or on staff because so often uh, people who are not educated in the field of nutrition as, you know, board certified dietitian, um, they bring in their own bias to what should be happening and, and versus actually looking at what is the whole practice, uh, the scope of practice I'm supposed to be in and how can I help this person based on not just what, it's not just about taking what someone's eating, you know, and oftentimes with a lot of people, you might not have to actually change what they're eating. Perhaps we need to need to look at, Hey, these are foods that help with anxiety or these are foods that foods that help with depression, maybe integrating some of those in. And then in turn, you start to change what a person is eating without actually changing what they're eating and right. telling them to do these things and eliminate things. We're actually now, 
we're, we're adding little cushions of health into their diet. Um, and they might not like things, you know, and again, it, I, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's like where a person comes from and where they live and what they have access to make a huge difference in how they grew up and what they enjoy today. Um, and if someone really is so used to only eating one type of way and you throw, you know, you as a practitioner with no background and insight say, you know, tell them to go eat kale salads every day. They're just going to look at you like, seriously, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Plus that's so, not maybe it, even know, the best thing to do for that person. Well, yeah, no, like, yeah, hundred percent. Cause I, yeah. I realize that a lot too. Like that's like, I'm, I'm under the firm belief that, um, one thing doesn't work for everyone, but something works for someone. And right. in my work with addiction, like you see people who are like, this is the only way to do it. This is the only way to do it. Like it's got to go to meetings, 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 meetings. If you don't go to meetings, you're not going to stay sober. Like right. for, for some people going to meetings is phenomenal for them. It, it keeps them sober. They do really well with it. But I know for some other people, like that's not what has got them sober. So, right. so it sounds like that's a very similar thing too, where like this one person is saying, well, eat kale, eat kale, like, like do this, like everyone do this, but like, that's not. Right. It's not what, a one size fits all. Yeah. And what's going on with their body type, what's going on with their, their history yeah. and also right. their relationship to food. Like right. that's what would make things different and not just yep. that a one size fits all, which I think as clinicians, we find ourselves in that spot where we're just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. eat better. Like eat better. Right. Maybe, yep. maybe don't eat too much. Like <laughs> what we, don't, we don't, we don't know that, but we get stuck into that. We don't want yeah. to ignore it, but like, we're not professionals either with right. the stuff that like the knowledge you have is astronomical in comparison to what I have when it comes to those things. So that one size fits all of just saying, well, eat better or do yeah. what you're eating is that could be a wrong message to somebody. Oh, like, well, and my least favorite is eat healthy. Yeah. There, you know, food, food, food is not healthy and it's not unhealthy. It's just food. We need people to, especially in addiction, struggling with mental illness. We just need people to eat because nine times out of 10 uh, addiction patients they've, they have not been eating well on any level, you know, during that whole time period that they've been struggling with drugs and alcohol period, because the drug, the drugs and alcohol play a physiological role in their system, which doesn't allow them to absorb nutrients, even if they were necessarily eating somewhat well to some degree, you know, like they're, they're not having the same absorption rates, um, on the whole. So, you know, to go and tell someone to quote unquote, eat healthy is just, it just is like, uh, that's so awful. You know, it just sends such a very, um, I don't know. It just sends a message that I think is not relatable when sure. a person has been struggling, whether they know it or not with nutrition and not, it is an eating disorder, but just so with mal malnutrition, malabsorption, um, maladaptive coping skills and, and food all in there. Like, I just, I think that's just, no one can relate to that phrase, eat healthier. Yeah. I think it, what it is just, that? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> I, I think it, I think it brings shame too that like that sends a message that you don't eat yes. healthy. And in my Correct. work with, with addiction and mental health, they're already bound with shame. Like there's enough shame, yes. like to <laughs> there's, that's yes. nothing short of shame. But that idea almost says, well, you need to, you know, eat healthy. You need to, to do that. It's almost like the message is you're not doing that. And I understand why they're not. They, they've, they're, they're addicted to drugs or alcohol or their mental health is really unmanaged. Like, I understand why they're not in the best physical shape. I don't need to, to they know that. They haven't slept in days or they haven't, um, they're aware of this. So saying that yeah, they know just, it, it, right. it doesn't help them to, to feel better about what they need to try and do it's more than likely going to put them back into that shame base that that not wanting to talk about not comfortable with it and that's not what we're trying to do and even having this discussion is just the idea of being more comfortable talking about issues like related to food and coping with it where is my right. connection with it um 
you can't do that when you're shaming somebody. <laughs> no. And that's, I think, one of my biggest issues. And I see it all the time with um, sometimes addiction, but oftentimes more so just mental illness in general, where, um, you know, doctors who live a very wonderful life of, you know, great food and stuff like that, and they have great access, they get a patient who's overweight or obese, and I get a consult to talk to them about their obesity. And it's like, I don't need to add more shame to their life right now. Like this is not appropriate on any level to go and say, Hey, your doctor wants me to tell you that you're obese and how right. you can fix yeah. that. Like they they already know they people who are struggling with their weight and who they may be okay, but let's say they're, they're obese and they're, you know, in a place where it's affecting their physical health. They know they're obese. They don't need to hear someone tell them, Hey, you're obese. Let's talk right. about it. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah, like yeah. It's, it's all about how you use your words with that, um, with that clientele and really getting to the fat, like the, the bones of, Hey, what are you struggling with that's affecting what you're eating or your food choices? What are, what struggles are you facing with physical activity? And instead of just saying, you know, Hey, you're obese. How can we, you know, go on this diet or start eating this and don't eat these foods ever again. You know? So I, I really think that words matter and shame. There is not a fine line with shame. Shame is like, it's like immediate. When you sure. start to talk about people's weight and what they're eating and you don't do it in the right way, shame is instant. Yeah, they're gonna um, feel it right there. Oh, they do. And, and I, I've seen it where they go back to worse maladaptive coping skills than food. And they're, you know, it can cause someone to tailspin. Um, and so it's, it's really, again, you know, to stress that point of how important it is to have you know, practitioners in, in your, your healthcare facilities that, that really know how to talk to people or at least handle these things, especially as they come to food, because food is so food and body, I should say, are so sensitive and they're becoming even more of, of a sensitive topic in today's culture where nothing you eat and no, no way you look is going to be right. And everyone has something to say about everything. So it's, it's a very shameful topic that creates a lot of vulnerability. And it's a place that I think so many people know they need to work on, but also a place they don't want to actually work on it because they have to be vulnerable and they know what shame feels like. And if you get someone in there who doesn't understand shame and vulnerability, that they're going to just put their guard up and they don't want to go there with food. Even if all you're doing is talking about eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you, it, the approach in which you do it has to be so, um, is so from a place of healing and, um, like genuine that you, you know, you want to help this person versus just another diet or, you know, just another number, just another person, just another label it's got, you've got to have such good rapport with someone before you can really, really start to work on them from a phys physiological and a physical health standpoint. Um, it just, it really, really makes a difference. And shame is a huge part of it. Yeah. I, yeah. And that's with a lot of areas and this just yeah. in and of itself, the more we talk about it, we're just uncovering more and more things with it. Like we kind of found like the digging site of like this issue of a, you know, mental health, addiction, nutrition, eating and all that. And we're kind of like brushing away at like, we're kind of unlayering the skeleton of a, a dinosaur here. And there's so much that like we're peeling yep. back with this. Um, and to our listeners, like we're going to keep working on like trying to bridge this gap of like, you know, addiction, mental health, and how can we better apply this with, the treatment we do and all that kind of stuff. There's no way we can cover all that like in this one episode, but with all my podcasts, right. <laughs> yeah, with all my podcasts though, like I like to kind of give 
listeners like some quick things to be like, hey, this is where you could start thinking about this or looking at this. Mm-hmm. So like from your perspective, like what are like two or three things that like people could start doing now that would just help address kind of the things that we've talked about? Yeah. So no matter, and, and this is the cool part of what I'm going to say is it doesn't matter if you are um, in a very early stage and you're, you're just starting your addiction recovery, or you're still in that phase of addiction and, and working on giving it up. Or if you're in recovery phase where you're, you're, you know, months or years out, it doesn't matter where you're at with, that's the cool part about nutrition is we can pick it up at any time and we can, we can be more aware. So number one is just simply being aware. Don't change anything. Don't, you don't have to do anything. Be aware and having that mindfulness of I'm going to have breakfast and here's what I'm having and here's what I'm eating and I can taste it. I can smell it. I'm, I can feel the textures and, and just aware of what you're doing and how you're feeling while you're doing it. So awareness of what your mindfulness of what you're actually eating physically and textures and all of that. And, and then awareness of what emotion am I feeling while I'm eating this food or even before I'm choosing to eat this food. You can have a journal and just start with that. And right there, you are going to see things that pop out like, whoa, I don't eat anything at night. Gosh, maybe I should. Or boy, I'm really eating a lot during the night when I should be sleeping. Okay. And you start to notice inconsistencies with different things. Um, You start to notice, oh my gosh, every time I talk to so-and-so, I start eating. Or you, you you just having that awareness is huge. Um, and again, having a journal, not necessarily of what you're eating, but what you're feeling in conjunction with when you're eating, if there are emotional ties to it. Um, second, I always like to tell people, start drinking water anywhere you can. We don't need to hydro load, but just drink water. Have yeah. it with your meals, have it with your snacks, have it, you know, start to get used to the blandness of water and be okay with the fact that it's just water and kind of gross and plain. Um, and get creative, throw a lemon in, throw a lime in, throw some strawberries, start to look at different recipes for, for those kinds of things that, you know, in the event that your dietitian or therapist says, Ooh, maybe we don't want to have all of that espresso. We have a, okay, you're right. I do drink enough water though. And I'm getting in the hydration I need. Third that someone can do, which is not directly related to nutrition, but affects kind of sometimes can take an effect on what we're eating, how we're eating and how we're feeling is just getting outside and walking, going on a bike ride. Um, maybe it's just around, around your yard. It doesn't matter, but just, and again, depending on where you live, you might be like, this girl is crazy. It's not safe in my neighborhood. That's fine. It's not anything you have to do, but just being more aware, getting fresh air, going for a walk, something every day that you can do that adds some enjoyable physical activity. You don't need to go nuts and start running. You don't need to start getting a gym membership or anything like that. Just start adding in little snippets of physical activity um, because those are how we start. Those are, those are little mini coping skills that we're growing um, is, wow, I really enjoy gardening or I really enjoy walking or I really enjoy Um, listening to music while I clean, Um, you know, all of those things, those little, uh, little bits of physical activity that we can do in the day are all immature coping skills that we can grow and, and start to develop. So, um, so that would be number three. And I guess nutritionally, um, you know, one last thing I'll say is every mental illness that I can think of, um, one of the things so many people lack is omegas. So, you know, getting your walnuts in and salmon and probably all the foods that no one really wants to eat. Yeah. <laughs> Omegas Not the are, glamour are, ones. Are, yeah. Omega is um, super, super helpful to the brain. Uh, so, you know, you want something on mental illness and nutrition, omegas are, are huge. So if, um, if that's the nutritional thing you're hoping to hear, great. And if not, you have a couple other things you can, you can use to start with. 
Yeah. And those are all, I think those are great, simple, you know, practical, not to, you know, getting too crazy with trying to reach the top of the mountain already, but like simple steps to start, start taking for people. And um, really glad that you were able to do this because with all the work I do with addiction, mental health, you're always trying to find something that could be like that game changer for people and, and what might make their recovery more successful next time or with their mental health. And I do believe that nutrition plays its role because mm-hmm. it's something that does have that connection with us, um, something that we need to do. But there is also just a lot of similarities and interactions when it comes to addiction and mental health. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I think now with what we talked about today, plus like the work that we're probably going to do further on, we can bring more of this to people who need it and clinicians who are trying to, to treat these issues. So if you liked what Annie said, listen to Between Two Pastries. Uh, It's a great podcast. They make talking about food so down to earth and comfortable. It's not anything that really, um, it gets you more comfortable talking about those issues and not feeling like it's um, such a taboo thing or a, I got to do this thing. But what you guys talk about on there is just so down to earth with food. So if you liked hearing her listen to her podcast um and i just want to thank you again annie for doing this because yeah. it was phenomenal so more work in the future yes so uh stay tuned thanks for listening